and feeding of werewolves. Episode 1, Gate of Horror. And welcome to Care and Feeding of Werewolves, a podcast addressing issues and current events in the paranormal community. I'm your host, Hazel Thornton. As you're probably already aware, my grandmother recently disappeared, which is uncharacteristic of her. In the past 25 years, I haven't known her to take an extended vacation without notifying anyone or arranging for someone to look after her apothecary slash clinic slash, which for hire, I don't know where I was going with that sentence, but she provides many services for the community and she takes that role pretty seriously. All of her things are still here, including stuff like her toothbrush and cell phone. So she didn't take anything with her. None of the wards were tripped. There was no sign of a struggle. The doors and windows were all locked, but that doesn't mean much because the house can look after herself like that. Smart houses have nothing on witch houses. My working theory is kidnapping, which is supported by several cases of other paranormal people going missing under similar circumstances within a matter of weeks of each other. I figured the best way to approach the situation is to compare each case and look for commonalities. However, the only correlations I could find are the time frame and region. There's nothing in their histories or backgrounds to tie them together. In fact, the disparity of the missing is the only connection. For example, serial killers are known for having a preferred victim type, right? But none of the missing are even in the same age groups or species. If I didn't know any better, I'd almost say they're taking a population sample. The demographics are that evenly dispersed. (laughs) If this was the movies or a TV show, there would be some vast government conspiracy behind all this. And they're being used for nefarious purposes, like testing or something, so they would need a diverse sampling. Of course, if this was a movie, I'd be a badass detective with a hot partner instead of a not-quite-a-real-doctor-yet whose nights consist of cuddling up with textbooks. Plus, I could have gotten all this research done with a montage set to inspirational music, and clues would practically be handed to me on a silver platter. I wish the real world worked like that. It would have made med school so much easier. But even magic has its limitations. (laughs) In reality, all of this takes much much longer, and can be far more frustrating as I am learning. I have been hunched over files, emails, journals, and calling everyone I can think of until I went cross-eyed. At least, my playlist is preferable to movie soundtracks, in my humble opinion. As I've learned from every crime show I've ever watched, 
I started with the obvious. I am not behind it, nor are there any close relatives with motive or opportunity. So I began with Nana's... I wouldn't call them enemies, per se. Rivals might be a better term. As in any community, strong and proud personalities will clash. So I approached everyone I knew who had a beef with her. Now, one of them has a nephew among the missing, which doesn't necessarily mean anything because family members are often involved in the kidnappings of minors. But I still approached all of them. I almost would rather take eight hours of biochem labs on no sleep and no caffeine than do that again. Almost. Luckily, I wasn't bitten, cursed, or shot. The reactions ranged from outright denials to outrage that I would implicate them in the disappearances to wishing that they had been the one to make Nana disappear. While nothing they gave me was of any help, neither was any of it lies. I don't have the ability for truth-sensing, and I won't force people to tell me the truth, but I did cast a spell for detecting lies without informing anyone that I did so. I'm like the neutral good-ish witch of the Pacific Northwest. While tearing the shop apart looking for clues, I found my Nana's dream journal. You know how when you wake up and the memories of your dreams are all fragmented? Bits and pieces of random images that tend to quickly fade in the light of day? That's what a dream journal is for. To record those fleeting recollections before they disappear and you can look for patterns. Although dream walking isn't a primary strength in our family line, healing gets that honor, it's still fairly strong and reliable enough for us to pay attention. Obviously, not every dream is prophetic or magical in nature. Test anxiety dreams certainly are not magical. But the ones that are tend to stand out in some way. They might be more emotional, more realistic, or more colorful. Those are the ones that get written down. Each dream journal is different and often full of unique shorthand because if you wake up in the middle of the night and scribble with one eye open, you're not exactly writing a research paper. So it took some time to interpret her stream of consciousness, but at least she has beautiful and legible handwriting. Her dreams were considerably less beautiful and involved lots of dismembered bodies. As I've recently been reminded that lay people get rather squeamish over detailed descriptions of injuries, I'll spare you the specifics. Let's just say they were eerily accurate. The other recurring impression is of a vague threat watching from the shadows which is less than helpful. Nana wasn't prone to paranoia, but she did note a feeling of being watched during her waking hours shortly before her disappearance. Now, I've done some things to enhance my own mediocre dreaming skills, 
and I'm having the same ones Nana had, at least in terms of imagery. In mine, there's a pervasive feeling of being watched, although that's to be expected since I feel like I have to fill Nana's shoes, and I'm accustomed to people always looking over my shoulder. That sense of being watched is combined with memories of the worst trauma cases I've ever seen, so they're likely a manifestation of my worry for Nana and feeling conflicted over leaving my residency. Or at least that's what logic would say, but logic and dreams don't exist in the same universe. Literally, there's a theory that some dreams take place on another plane of existence that can be physically visited. Unfortunately, the rest of the dreams are no more edifying than those in the dream journal. For clarification, Nana turned to other forms of divination, which is standard practice. Tarot, runes, scrying, even tea leaves. They all say... Every time I say, the cards say, or the runes say, I feel like a racist sideshow act. Anyway, I performed my own readings, although scrying for her or any of the missing was an exercise in futility, and came up with the same results. Disappearances and extensive trauma committed by an unknown or unseen threat. In Nana's and my castings, one rune appeared in every single one, sometimes inverted. Perthro. It even appeared in tea leaves and dreams, and literally means the unknowable, amongst other things. In the Merkstave, or inverted, position, it means that things are beyond your control. But I'm too stubborn, or maybe too dumb to accept that. Or it could be my burgeoning god complex. The jury's still out on that one. After getting more detailed reports on the missing, many of them also felt like they were being watched shortly before their disappearances. A couple of them even had dreams similar to Nana's. The families who lacked the ability to do so themselves allowed me to try and catch whatever lingering impressions I could at the last known locations of the loved ones. I didn't hold out much hope for this method since it had been weeks and an isolated incident short of murder in the usual rhythms of a home doesn't tend to leave a long-lasting imprint. I compared my findings with the families who performed their own sight readings, and in a couple of cases, the locations were faintly resistant to magic of any kind. I have never encountered anything like it before, and none of the families could explain it either. It was like my energy was water, and the area was hydrophobic. It just washed away. Now, magic is everywhere to some extent, even if it's just trace amounts. I have no idea what the sudden lack of it, even in localized areas, would do to someone. If the spots weren't already fading, I would have been concerned about what effects that may have had on anyone living there. Remember how I said Nana wasn't prone to paranoia? She did enhance the protections on the shop, which she lives above, 
to a level normally reserved for twitchy old warlocks who live in the backwoods with lots of guns. I didn't even know that anyone other than a dryad could convince plants to do what she did. It took me a while to convince the new wards to let me in, except for one spot that was strangely weak. Again, that's not something she would have let slide, not if she had concerns about her safety or that of anyone coming to see her. The null spots weren't present at every disappearance either, just the ones where there were spell wards or magic users involved. A vampire or werewolf, while they may be able to use magic, when push comes to shove, they tend to go for teeth or claws, not spells. That's because a person reaches for their strongest or most habitual defense when in a crisis. Near as I can tell, whoever is behind this can somehow nullify magic in small areas for a short period of time. And they used this ability to punch through her wards and possibly those of the other victims. That indicates that whoever is behind this knows the strengths and weaknesses of their targets and plans accordingly. Or that more than one person is involved. Or both. Either way, it's a terrifying prospect. The good news is, is that all these methods of divination indicate the present, which implies that she's still alive, even if she's still in danger. I am well aware of my own personal bias possibly affecting my interpretation. However, it is the most logical conclusion given the time markers in the dreams and readings. I suppose I was naive and hoped that all this would be a quick search and rescue, but it's rapidly becoming apparent that this is more of a marathon than a sprint, and I am woefully unprepared. I have no idea what made me think I could do anything to help. I suppose I wasn't thinking, just reacting, which is one of the many reasons why you're not supposed to treat loved ones. But it's too late now. Rosemary Thornton is five foot three and 140 pounds with gray eyes. She looks middle-aged. As of three weeks ago, her hair was dyed blue and purple. She has a floral half-sleeve tattoo on her left upper arm. Daisies for her mother, Rose for my mother, and uh, Hazel for me. I have a similar one done as a bracelet with Rosemary instead of Witch Hazel. I suppose that might help identify my body if I happen to vanish and turn up dead in a ditch. If you have any knowledge about Rosemary Thornton, Owen Grimsbane, or any of the other missing, please let me know. Updates will follow when we have them. And until then, please stay safe. Care and Feeding of Werewolves is a podcast distributed by Kerfuffle and Chaos Productions and licensed under a Creative Commons non-commercial attribution share-alike 4.0 International. 
Today's episode was written and performed by Brenna Anderson Dowd, edited by Frederick Elmore, with music by Kevin Elmore. Find us on Facebook at Care and Feeding of Werewolves, tweet us at Care Werewolves, or email us at feedingwerewolves at gmail.com. Please rate and review. All content on the Care and Feeding of Werewolves podcast is fictional and for entertainment purposes only. Content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Reliance on any information provided by Care and Feeding of Werewolves, Kerfuffle and Chaos Productions, or anyone involved with the production of this podcast is solely at your own risk.